0: Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free
1: 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Be diligent to present yourself or prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Welcome to The Bible Line. If you happen to be a first-time listener, for the next hour we will be taking people's questions. Uh, people sometimes are studying a passage of Scripture that is challenging. They're trying to understand its meaning or its application. or Maybe there's a challenge in their home or church or business life that they want biblical counsel on. Well, if we can be of help to you by God's grace, all you need to do is pick up the phone and Call us and we'll do the best we can to respond to each and every question. Several ways you can contact us. You can email us here immediately into the studio and it will pop up in front of us. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. You can also call us directly at our local 843 exchange, and that five eighteen fifty nine. If you do call, we do give priority to live callers, but if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question and hang up. So however you'd like to uh, give it to us this morning. So Rick, we'll go ahead and we'll get started and jump in this Easter week. What a great week this is here.
0: Amen, brother. Yes. It sure is. This is the this is what it's all about. This That's right. The, the, the message that uh, we need to share with a, a lost and, and needy world right now. Joshua from Hilton Head writes, somebody asked me to explain the difference between the teaching on the sanctity of life and the multiple passages in the Old Testament where Elohim Elohim kills infants in the womb, most of which were judgments against Israel or neighboring cultures, and claimed it was a sign of moral inconsistency between the texts of Scripture. I didn't have an answer, and it was a bit persuasive, to be honest. How do I address this matter of seeming scriptural discrepancy?
1: Well, obviously, as you know, there are no discrepancies in the Bible, so you modify it with the word seemingly, and rightly so, my brother. So I appreciate that. With that said, it's certainly a difficult challenge, but it's not an impossible one. Uh, God is omniscient. He sees the beginning and the end. And so, of course, he gave specific instructions. Uh, I'm reading now from the book of Deuteronomy. And this was in regards to the Canaanites, which is, which is a general term, term used to describe the people who filled the land of Canaan. In the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you in inheritance, do not leave anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Uh, Do you remember that occasion when uh, Saul really disobeyed this command? And Samuel uh, came... And uh confronted him, first, God came to Samuel, and here in first uh, Samuel fifteen, God says, "I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me, and has not carried out my commands." And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night, and Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel or Carmel, if you want, and behold, he set up a monument. For himself and then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal and Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him blessed are you of the Lord I've carried out the Lord's command and then Samuel said why then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear and so he had not completely carried out the command and of course he left the king. Uh, his life had spared him and And so God had given some very, very specific instructions. Now, remember, God is patient. God is long-suffering. God looks at the long view. Uh, He wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so there was a reason why God even had uh, Israel in Egypt for 400 years. It was a fulfillment of a prophecy he had made to Abraham. Uh, There he said, God said to Abram, before his name was changed, "'Know for certain that your descendants "'will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, "'where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. "'But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, "'and afterward uh, they will come out with many possessions.'" Talking about their exit from Egypt, and most of you know the exodus and how God allowed them to leave. "'As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. "'You will be buried at at a good old age.'" And then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And so uh, here's Abram. He's in that section of Israel where God appeared to him and said after that long trip, this is where I want you to live. And, of course, it's um, occupied by the, the Amorite. And so God waited 400 years for the iniquity of the Amorite, who is representative of the peoples in the land. And they largely inhabited the land we call Israel today in Syria and a little bit other places. And, and God waited 400 years to give them opportunity to repent. But they were a wicked people. Some of their actions I, I don't even want to describe over the radio and so god said go in and terminate them and of course if you read the scriptures the israelites failed in this mission and uh, I mean, what happened uh, happened just as god said they would end up following other gods just read the book of judges or first or second kings and and god did not order understand the extermination of this people to be to cr- to be cruel he did it because he knew that there was a greater evil that would come on the people of Israel and those to whom they were to have a testimony to if they didn't do it. So again, God is looking at the long view, and and certainly one of the most difficult commands from God is the death of, of children, but God dictated that. One, children really aren't innocent. We all sinned in Adam, but with that said, these children were no doubt, in God's eyes, going to grow up and they were going to continue to adhere to the practices of their parents. Maybe there would be some bright exceptions here and there, but again, these children, in one sense, it was an act of mercy and that they'll you'll meet them someday in heaven. Uh, God God sees again the long view and he doesn't hold children accountable for something they cannot understand, just like the millions and millions of aborted babies, you'll see them in heaven someday because God takes children to heaven when they die. But if they had been left in those homes because the sin of the fathers of those who hate him will be passed on to the generations that follow, though, again, God can break a chain where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But still, God saw that these children even, would grow up and practice the evils. I mean, we're talking about things where they would take live babies and they would offer them to false gods on a fire pan. And these children also would have grown up to have hated the Israelites and would have wanted to destroy the Israelites and kill the Israelites. And yet God, in his mercy, is going to bring a Savior to the world through the Jewish people. So we must never forget that God looks at things from an eternal perspective and that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, that God is just, he's righteous, he's holy, he's loving, he's merciful, he's gracious. And sometimes how all those attributes work together, we cannot fully explain because we don't have all the information. But to refine your question here a little bit, this was done on the... Enemies of Israel, and it was a limited command only as they occupied the promised land. It wasn't later given in other generations of Jews to other people, but only to those in the promised land because God knew that had this not been carried out, that it would only bring heartache and turmoil. And even the fact that they partially carried it out, not fully, I'm sure brought a lot of um, relief from the potential danger. And ultimately, you know, Satan wants to stop the coming of a Savior. And he made many attempts, and I'm sure he pulled on people's hearts to try to get them not to perform what God had specifically said. So God is a pro-life God, and he's not only pro-life for this life, he's pro-eternity. And he's looking at the long view. So good question. I appreciate you asking it.
0: 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Sue from Bluffton writes, is it improper for a Christian to be cremated?
1: It's a good question. Um, You know, people often ask me what I think of cremation. And I will tell them that in the scripture, there's no practice of cremation to speak of. Now, there's some rare exceptions, and let me comment on those. But for the most part, the pattern that God gives us in Scripture in dealing with our loved ones is to bury them. Uh, Cremation, of course, is you you burn the body into oblivion, so to speak, and then you take the ashes and you do whatever you want with them. And uh, we see it in Scripture as a picture of judgment. Uh, It was done on Achan and his family because they sinned against Israel and sinned against God and was thwarting the plans that God had for the people of Israel, and so they were, quote-unquote, cremated. They they were burned. Uh, But when it comes to believers who loved the Lord and practiced His commands, they were always buried. John the Baptist, Ananias, Sapphira, they were always buried. The assumption in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that your loved ones have been buried. When the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will come out of the grave first, and then those of us who are alive on the earth, we're going to be caught up to meet them in the air. In 1 Corinthians 15, the the great resurrection passage, um, Paul speaks of uh, taking a body and sowing it like a seed. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body this mortal must put on immortality, this perishable must put on the imperishable. And so he likens the burial in faith to the planting of a seed. You take a seed, it looks dead, but life comes out of that seed, and you plant a body in the ground, and it looks like there's, you know, it's over. But in faith, the believer uh, recognizes that God is going to raise the body. Now, a cremation was started uh, first in the United States by a group of people known as the Unitarians and Unitarians by this time in their history were total apostates and so in 1876 it's an easy date for me to remember 1776 100 years later 1876 the Unitarians up there in the northeast and there's still some Unitarians so they represent a pretty small voice today uh, they started cremating. And one of the reasons is because they defied the basic truths of Scripture. Not only did they deny the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ, as they do to this day, and not only do they affirm all kinds of things that God calls an abomination. We have some Unitarian Universalist church here in Hilton Head and in Beaufort, and they're total apostates. Uh, They are propagating things that God calls evil, as are some now mainline denominations here in our own county. But with that said, in defiance of the resurrection, because they didn't believe there was a resurrection, they didn't believe that you would be raised to life. And even today, uh, they have all kinds of weird beliefs since their inception in terms of what happens to a person when they die. Well, your spirit becomes part of this big, huge spirit in the universe, and it just depends which Unitarian you're speaking to, because since they have no basis for authority, they can come up with just about anything they want to. But in defiance of the fact that Christians said, no, there's as much hope for the body as there is for the soul, they said, we're going to cremate our loved ones. And it was their way of denying the the doctrine of the bodily resurrection, kind of their way of raising their puny little fist in the face of God Almighty. And so with that said, Uh, Christians in the early part of the 19th or late part of the 19th century early part of the 20th century it wasn't even an option for them why would we want to endorse something that the Unitarians are branding and of course uh, with time the church has become largely ignorant we don't know what the scripture says and so we don't really follow the scriptural example Now, let me just say, while it's never technically commanded that we bury the dead, uh, there are a lot of things that we do in Scripture that we do by example. For instance, technically, there is no command in Scripture that says you have to have deacons, but it is assumed that you have deacons, it's modeled that you'll have deacons, and the qualifications that a man must meet to serve as a deacon are given in Scripture. So, uh, we do a lot of things by example, and the example that we find in Scripture is that of burial. Again, there's the rare exception with Achan. Some would say, well, what about Saul and his sons? Well, Saul and his sons, if you remember, their bodies were nailed to a wall uh, there in Beth Sheon. And if you go to Israel with me, we will go to Beth Sheon. This is like a a real spot. We know it happened right here. And uh, it's one of those... Uh, spots that you go to in Israel. Well, maybe it happened here or could have happened. No, it happened there. And in Beth Shean, they, they just totally mutilated their bodies and they were so messed up. They really couldn't transport them. So what did they do? They burned the flesh off, but then they took the bones and they carried them back and and buried them. And, and in practice, that's what Jews in one sense um, have as their uh, furthermost goal today. They don't embalm And so in the first century, anyway, when someone died, you'd put them in a tomb, and you'd wait a year, and after a year, the flesh would rot off, and then you would take the bones that were left and put them in a little box called ossuaries, and so that way you could have multiple people of the same family and clan buried in the same tomb. And of course, you had some real liberals who uh, found some tombs from the time of Christ, and One little box said Yeshua on it, another said Mary, and they said, oh, this must be Jesus and Mary married, uh, that Jesus married Mary Mary Magdalene, just stupid stuff that has no, uh, you know, biblical basis or doesn't even make sense. So again, people were buried, and when God himself does a burial, um, he buries Moses. He, the Lord, in Deuteronomy 34, buried Moses and i think too from a practical point of view when you as a pastor are doing a funeral the funeral has a whole lot more punch when there's a body present than when there's simply a, a an urn or nothing at all or just a picture it it's it's just a firm reminder that this person is gone and i think it helps people in the grieving process but it also Uh, is a good tool that the Spirit of God uses to bring people to faith in Christ. And sometimes it's at a funeral, which is really your last will and testament, where you have the best and greatest opportunity to speak to people about Christ through the pastor that you've left to do your funeral. And uh, the reality that death is here and it could happen to them just is brought home in a powerful, powerful way. And you don't want to miss that. You say it's a little more expensive. Look, I see these guys they they buy these twenty five thousand dollar boats and this all these toys and but they don't have money you know for a funeral it, It's a matter of priority and it's a matter of things that are important and things that are really eternal so good question, it comes up often, but it's been a while since we've answered it
0: eight four three five two five one eight five nine if you have a question on today's Bible line. Betty from Buford says a recommendation for a children's Bible version for a five-year-old that can read well would be appreciated. The picture Bibles are not keeping his interest
1: or improving his reading. He wants to read an adult Bible. Well, uh, good for your child. That that's great. And and let me say, there's a lot of children's Bibles that are worthless. And I mean worthless. I mean some that are just inaccurate. I have. I own approximately 20 children's Bibles in my library, and one uh, has Moses floating down the river in a basket laughing. That's the exact opposite of what the text says. He wasn't laughing. He was crying, the Bible says. And so there's children's Bibles that are inaccurate. Then you had, like, you know, the Amy Grant Bible, where she'd bring in all these animals, uh, to like like the Bible needed enhancing. And you know just just was not helpful and i think uh was a big big mistake. uh with that said i do believe that there are some children's bibles that are well illustrated but there's not much content to them and that's probably what your child is struggling over is that there's great pictures but really no content in terms of what's going on and what those pictures represent. and then occasionally you'll get a children's bible that just doesn't communicate well. Like some uses the old King James 17th century English, which is, you know, difficult for a five-year-old to understand. So there are two that I recommend. One is called the Action Bible, and the other is called the uh, the Children's Bible. And again, there's tons of Bibles for children titled the Children's Bible, but this one is done by David C. Cook Publications. And in my view, it's the most accurate um, translation, so to speak, or paraphrase that's done for children. Uh, It takes the biblical text and then summarizes the key critical highlights of the Old and the New Testament. But what's beautiful about the children's Bible that's done by David C. Cook is each section is indexed to the, the passage it's coming from. So if there's Lazarus being raised from the dead, it's going to say John chapter 11. Uh, And so that's going to be helpful because sometimes what you can do, especially as the child begins to grow. And by the way, if you've got a five-year-old and they're reading well, uh, they could read these two Bibles and get a tremendous amount out of them. And so generally, we took our kids through the children's Bible about five times over the course of their early years, and as the children got older, we have older children reading to the younger children, One to enhance their skills, but also because they're going to absorb more. And then as they got older, we began to say, well, now that we've read this out of the children's Bible for Jameson, uh, Jeremy, let's go ahead and look up this passage in First Kings 18, and I want you to read it from First Kings 18, and let, let's see what we hear from the real Bible, the complete record of what God gave us, that we didn't pick up in the children's Bible. And again, it would take these biblical concepts and really drive them home. But there's a real blessing to having like a children's Bible to work through with your children, and that if it's well done, and I've recommended too, and I'm sure there are some others, but these two are excellent. The Children's Picture Bible by David C. Cook's been around for about 40 years. Uh, and it's, by the way, in some other languages. And again, there's real precision there. So like, for instance, instead of having one angel or five angels, uh, there's two angels at the, uh, the entrance to the Garden of Eden with that flaming sword of fire. Why is that? Well, because in Hebrew there's a singular, there's a dual, and then there's a uh, uh, there's a plurality that refers to three or more. And in Hebrew it, there's a dual, so cherubim is a dual, and so there's just two angels. So there's real precision, I think, in what they've done. But it will also help you to get uh, a big picture for your children of all the major Bible events in historical records that have been written. I'm I'm a little reluctant to say the Bible stories because the word story more and more just means some tale. We're not talking about tales. We're talking about historical records. All right. I
0: like to use the word account. Yeah, account you know. or historical record. Those those are great.
1: The yeah. Good, 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 good word, Rick.
0: Okay. Uh, we just had a caller, an anonymous caller, wanting
1: to know, is it possible to lose your salvation? No, it's not. It's... It's absolutely impossible to lose your salvation. Now, the genesis the the of that question for an individual, what's motivating them to ask it becomes important because sometimes people will look back in an event in their life where, you know, they prayed a prayer with a preacher and maybe he baptized them and and years have gone by and now they've wandered away from the faith and they've lived a life of, you know, moral impropriety and, And then they're asking the question, is it possible that I lost my salvation? No, it's not. You cannot lose salvation. But what might be a better question to ask, is it possible that I never had salvation? Because, again, while the Bible does not teach that once you're born again, you live a perfect life, we're not talking about perfection, but we are speaking of direction, that when you are genuinely converted— there's a new direction that your life takes. And if that direction is not really a pattern, then it usually means that you're not a new creature in Christ Jesus. Um, John writes in 1 John, children, it is the last hour. And just as you've heard that any Christ is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Uh, the phrase, the last hour, last days began, on the day of Pentecost because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ uh, we can speak of the last of the last days or we can use the term latter times which refers not just to the started Pentecost but to those days that will reflect um, the atmosphere just before the second coming but in the truest sense since Christ had ascended they were in the last hour and Jesus could come back at any moment to catch up the church because, again, the rapture is not a prophecy-driven event. The second coming is, but not the catching up of the church. And, of course, one of the things that God said would happen after the church would be caught up is that there would be a growing um, rebelliousness towards the truth. And so Jesus even told in the kingdom parables in Matthew 13 about a man who went out and sowed good seed, and then an enemy came and he sowed tares. And, of course, in the interpretation of that, he describes the good seed as the gospel preacher, so to speak, and the bad seed being the evil one, the devil, trying to uh, plant a false gospel, and the two will grow up together. So in that sense, oh, this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said. We know that Antichrist, meaning the Antichrist, the Antichrist of all Antichrists, is coming. But these false teachers who are against Christ, who come in the place of Christ, sowing bad seed, they're very much alive. And then he describes them because they were once a part of the church. He said they went out from us, but they were not really of us. So there were people who came into the church who were good members, say, maybe even teachers, but they departed the church. And by the way, this is one of the themes that is underscored in the book of Jude. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, you thought, you know, I thought I would really like Lord to, to write something like Romans about our common salvation. But as he was moving in that direction, God led him otherwise. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Uh, it's not faith for faith, but for the faith. It's articular, meaning that the body of truth that we refer to as the Bible, which has been handed down uh, once and for all to all the saints. We don't have an ongoing Bible. It's a complete scripture for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. These are these antichrists that John's talking about. They come in, they say they're born again, they make a confession of faith, they're with you. They've crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so the church is to be alert to such people, to such false teachers who will come in. So they went out from us, but they were not really of us. How do we know that they were really not truly genuine born-again people? For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. In other words, they would have persevered. Jesus speaks in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. He's speaking of that time frame in human history where to follow Jesus, it may cost you literally your head, because there will be millions of believers who refuse to follow the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast, and so their heads are cut off. But the one who perseveres, who never renounces Christ, He has the genuine item. You're not saved by perseverance. When the Protestant Reformers spoke of perseverance of the saints, they were not saying that you were saved by perseverance. They were simply teaching that the one who is saved will persevere. He will not renounce Christ. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that that he says they went out, it shows that they were not really of us to begin with. In other words, if you have it, you can't lose it. If you've lost it, you never really have it. He that believes in me has, not will have, but has right now eternal life. Eternal life is something that you get not when you die, but the moment you believe because eternal life, John 17, 3, is coming into a personal relationship with Christ. The one who believes has this moment eternal life. You cannot lose something eternal. Jesus said, I lose none, but everyone who beholds the Father and believes in the Son is going to have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's the promise. He doesn't lose a single one. What I would suggest to this caller who's asked this question would be to go online. You can go to communitybiblechurch.us or to searchthescriptures.org and type in Basic Discipleship. And what you want to listen to is part one or session one of the Basic Discipleship series. And there's five parts to the first handout. And I spend five weeks walking through the doctrine of eternal security. And so I've just given you a couple of passages, and I go through dozens of passages over 150 times in the New Testament. God teaches you cannot lose your salvation. There's a handful that at initial glance, without looking at the context, it appears that maybe you could. But remember, God doesn't contradict himself when he says over 150 times that you're eternally secure, and you come up with a handful of passages that seem to indicate, well, maybe I can lose it. A good rule of thumb is you interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. And so... um, Good, good question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a caller who's yeah, waiting.
0: We actually have two callers waiting, right. so let's go to the first one now. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead. We're listening. Hi,
1: good morning. I have a question in regards to money and sort of the Dave Ramsey approach to money, and I know you have taught a course on money as
0: well, and I've listened to some of that. My specific question is, after Dave Ramsey talks about paying off debt, he has certain other steps like paying
1: off your or, or investing 15% for retirement and saving for your children's college and paying off your home and then building wealth and give. My question to you is, do you agree with the rest of that? I know you're also pretty big on uh, paying off debt, but would you agree with the
0: rest of his steps so I have a fire truck coming by.
1: That's all right. All right, so let me respond, and I think you can hear. We just turned down your volume, so we don't have to hear the fire truck. But thank God for those people who, who work as first responders here in our county. Um, you know, my course on the, fu- the theology of money uh, in handling your finances God's way, and I've I've taught it several times over the last three decades. And the most recent one was done in 2019. And I go through first the issue of stewardship. What does it mean to be a steward? I talk about um, what the scripture says about giving, about debt, about saving, about investing, and about planning. So if you just heard a section of it, you have to work through the whole course to get the big picture. So I would say, you know... Um, my course is a little bit different from Dave's, Dave Ramsey's, because although he's a professing born again Christian, he is appealing to a wider range of people. So I, you know, I haven't read his book recently, but someone gave me a copy of it. I don't know, ten, fifteen years ago, and I flipped through it. And there's maybe like five biblical references in the whole book, at least that edition. You know, there's probably a thousand biblical references in my course, and I think that that's important, and I'll tell you why, because unless a believer sees that these teachings are rooted and grounded from God's Word, then they're not going to typically, in the long haul, stick with it. And so if they think, well, this is a motivational thing, you know, you owe nothing to anyone, and then you can, you don't have to live like everybody else, that little rhyme Dave Ramsey it has to be far more than that it has to be rooted and grounded in the scripture so God says things about saving learn a lesson from the ant. you know in time of plenty she saves so that in time of need she's got something you know to show so there are biblical principles about debt you know when is debt appropriate because you can't say all debt is sin uh, because God said to Israel that if you would obey me I'll make you the lender rather than the borrower Well, is God blessing disobedience? Obviously not. But God says a lot about debt and he warns about it. And God has a very conservative view of debt and how, because every seven years all debts were canceled. And so, you know, these are important issues. And so when you think about debt, we shouldn't think of it the way the American culture does. It used to be that, you know, most car loans in America were for three years. When they first started out, they were one or two years. And then when you could get a three-year car loan, wow. Most people don't have three-year car loans anymore. They have five- or six-year car loans. You can even get a 10-year car loan on a brand-new car. Uh, So that, to me, is just not wise. And so, for instance, I I show in the course how to buy a car debt-free. Even if someone wants to buy a brand-new car, how do you build up to building to buying a car debt-free? Uh, one of my sons called me the other day, and he said, Dad, I'm so excited. I, and he sent me a copy of the check. He just paid off his house. And, you know, I thought, well, that, that's, that's what I trained him to do, uh, that you don't think for the long run in terms of uh, paying off debt. You think for the short run. So there's some things that he says that I have no problem with. Um, What I think the Course is very weak on, at least what I've seen, and maybe he's updated it, was how do you invest in eternity? And I spent a lot of time on that because it's not just, well, I don't have a house payment, but how do I really invest wisely as a believer? Because if we're not faithful in the money that God puts in our pocket, Uh, if we're not faithful in unworldly riches or unrighteous mammon, depending on your translation, then who's going to entrust true riches to you? And so the way we handle our money is indexed potentially to our ability to lay up treasure in heaven. So that's just a really brief answer, but I would say listen to the whole course. And I've taught it in one day before, and I remember the last time I taught it in one day, um, People came up to me in their 60s and, say, and said to me, I wish I'd learned this when I was 20 years old. In fact, it's a requirement for me to marry anyone. They have to, as part of their 20 hours of homework that they have to do before I will stand in front of them and oversight what God is going to do in joining two people, they have to go through that whole course and even come up with the, the budget that is reflective of the principles that they've learned. So, anyway, um, good question. Let's go to the next one.
0: Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Alberto from Savannah, Georgia is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, Dr. Carl Brogge and Rich Porchner. My question is, if, I, if I'm a believer, right, but then... I say to myself, well, I'm a by a low life, you know, piece of trash. But then people say, well, you got so sort low of go self-esteem in yourself. But then if I say, well, I'm really holy, sanctified, you know, then
1: they'll accuse me. Well, you think you're so holy, so you think you're all so, 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 righteous. So either way, you're going to be accused. Either way, if you don't know your position in Christ or, or you think you're too holy, you know, you start seeking God and you start doing all the things of God. And it either way, get accused by both sides, by like the unbeliever and by the believer. So, how do you balance that out? All right, good, good question. Um, so, I suppose if you want to put it in, you know, modern idioms, you can say I'm a scumbag by nature, but I am righteous by grace. And again, you're 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 holding those two truths, you know, at the same time if someone comes across that they are holier than thou, then they're probably not doing a good job in terms of communicating the grace of God. And so when we we speak about sin and rebelliousness and abominations, you know, it needs to be done with the heart, there go I, but by God's grace and mercy, that left on the wrong track long enough, that could definitively be me. And so when you preach God's law with God's grace, because the two go hand in hand, if you just say, well, drunkenness is wrong, adultery is wrong, fornication is wrong, abortion is wrong, but you don't hold out at the same time the hand of grace that you know God is big and he can forgive, and if we're willing to admit what God says about those things— that they are indeed wrong and evil, and we are willing to receive his grace through the cross because that's the only way it comes, through the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And we call upon Jesus to forgive and to change those sins on the basis of the death and resurrection. Then people hear something else. You know, there are folks out there who they want to justify sin, and sometimes there's nothing you can do to persuade them otherwise a grandmother brought two of her grandchildren in their early 20s recently to meet the pastor and and they wanted to know why i thought you know homosexuality was wrong and is not incest an option for people to exercise and then just some just some unbelievable thoughts these young women had and of course, they were looking, and they were saying that the Bible's been mistranslated and it can't be trusted and da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, they were looking for a reason not to believe. And there are people like that who will throw up stuff at your face, and they're not asking out of an earnest and sincere heart because they're really searching. They are throwing up a smokescreen in order to defend why they shouldn't believe because they're under conviction. And so they're throwing up excuses as to why you're wrong or you're holier than thou or you're this or you're that. So, you know, we don't present ourselves as, you know, righteous by our own doing. That are what we are. I am what I am, Paul says, by the grace of God. And it was the grace of God that revealed my need for a Savior. It was the grace of God that Um, credited to my account the righteousness of christ it was the grace of god that implanted the spirit of god in me that made me a new person so that i could change and become the person that god wants me to be and that's what real freedom is jesus said you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free freedom is not doing whatever you want to do freedom is doing that which you ought to do and it's only through a second birth when you're born from above, that you are truly, genuinely free where you can live a different kind of life.
0: All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Sherry from Robinson, Illinois writes, As I grow and study my Bible, I feel I don't know how to answer questions concerning why I believe what I believe. Could you suggest a study Bible on
1: apologetics or books that are on apologetics? Well, it's a good question. Um, You know, I think some great resources would be answers in Genesis. Uh, Sometimes the titles are not always reflective, but there's four volumes on apologetics. Uh, Volume two and volume number one deal with a number of subjects like, um, let let me just read some titles from their book, Who Created God, Uh, Why Are So Many Christian Colleges, moving down a secular road what is apologetics uh there's a chapter in here why is the bible unique which i wrote i authored in that um uh, that series and they they answer like 25 different questions then they have some uh a couple of volumes on uh, world religions and sometimes many of these world religions buddhism confucianism unitarianism uh druidism Uh, Zoroasterism, I wrote the chapter in Zoroasteris, and what is Zoroasterism? And again, when you read through an apologetics books like this, uh, if it's well written, and these are well done, all the chapters in them, and I contributed to four of the chapters, like one of the chapters I wrote is, why is the Protestant Reformation important? Well, it's really important. And so this would be a good resource. And the other author, so Answers in Genesis, any of their books on apologetics. And um, I don't think it's titled maybe the best, uh, How Do We Know the Bible is True, Volume 1 and 2. But in those two volumes, they answer a lot of basic apologetic questions. Uh, And then there are two volumes on world religions and cults is also very useful because, again, what it does for you is it bones you up on the truth. So if you're going to study, say, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, what it's going to do is it's going to compare very carefully what the Bible actually says with what they actually say from their documents. Um, So that would be, I think, a, a, a good good resource. Um, there were some other books written by Josh McDowell but I don't think they're very well done in my opinion. I mean the information is there but they're not very readable and that's because for the most part he didn't write them. Um, he had Campus Crusade for Christ staff who researched them and did the work and then because I had a friend who worked for him for many years and then they'd throw a book together like you know uh, oh, I, he wrote like 20 different books and they, they would just crank them out Um, so, um, but I'd start with answers in Genesis. I I think that would be a a good place to start. You might want to consider, um, listening to my series on the 10 most commonly asked questions about Christianity, and we are redoing the entire, uh, discovery class that is coming online, um, very soon here, hopefully by the, by the end of, uh, this year, the middle of next year. Um, So that might be something to consider listening to, but some of them are already up there. And so I would encourage you maybe to, to consider that.
0: Sharon from Springfield, Georgia writes, we are doing a Bible study at our church using a book by Wayne Grudem with the title Bible Doctrine and the subtitle Essential Teachings of the Christian Faith. I'd be interested to know how you felt about this work. He does seem to take a firm view so far on critical teachings in scripture, and then just give the different views on controversial issues, definitively ruling out some of those views. We're still new in the study, and I've only skimmed through a few chapters to come.
1: Well, Wayne Grudem is a good brother. I've, I've met him on one occasion because one of my uh, close friends worked for him for three years when he started the Council on Biblical Manhood Um a number of years back when he was still teaching at Trinity Evangelical Seminary. Uh, I, ha- I don't have this particular edition you have. I have his full systematic theology. And so he does a reasonably fair job in representing a number of different positions. Unlike some systematic theologies, he doesn't always come down and say, but this one here I think is best representative of of um what I think the bible actually teaches. But overall he is dealing with a number of different issues uh whether it's defending the deity of Christ in christology or in pneumatology or eschatology he's going to he's going to review the broad views and then leave it for you to decide. Now, you know, again I love him as a brother I don't agree with him on everything. He's a charismatic, closet charismatic who speaks in tongues. And I've never agreed with him on that. And it always kind of surprised me that he took that position because he's so sound on so many other doctrines. And I don't think he does a good job representing the cessationist view on tongues. Um, But overall, I think uh, you guys will have a great study. And hopefully be forced to search the scriptures, you know, in a more in-depth way so that you can say, well, what, what is God actually saying here? But, you know, 80% of what he presents is just basic theology. It's not like you don't take a position on the, um, you know, the deity and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's taught in Scripture, so it's not like, well, some people think he's God, but he's not a person, or some people think he's a person, but not God. In terms of an evangelical systematic, he, all believers recognize that he is a person and he is God, and that's how we relate to him, not as a force or a thing or an it or a dove or a bird. or a, You know, he's a person with all the attributes of the Father and the Son, and equally to be worshipped. And so he'll do a good job, say, in presenting something like that in his systematic. Now, it's a limited systematic. So, you know, I have like an eight-volume systematic theology by Lewis Perry Chafer, who is the founder of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. So in your book, you know, maybe Grudem will cover, say, 30 pages on angelology. Um, You know, Dr. Chafer had an entire volume on angelology. Um, in Grudem Systematic, he has, you know, fairly large section on Christology, the Doctrine of Christ. Dr. Chaffer has an entire volume on it. Um, so uh, it's going to be limited, but it's a good starting place. I think uh, Dr. Ryrie, Charles Ryrie, if you wanted a one-volume Systematic Theology, he has uh, done one, I think it's called Basic Theology by Dr. Charles Ryrie. That's very, very well done. And it's, um, again, it's just covering the highlights. It's it's like Romans. You can buy a single volume commentary on the book of Romans. I have one set of commentaries that's eight volumes just on Romans. So it depends how far you want to go. But overall, he's a good brother. He's a sound brother. Don't agree with him on everything, but... I'm telling you, on the major things, he's right on and solid and straight as an arrow.
0: All right, Bill from Racine, Wisconsin writes, A couple in our church had a sign in their front yard with phrases such as, Love is love, or women's rights are human rights, and no human is illegal, among others. These are obviously code for support of LGBTQ, abortion, illegal immigration, etc., Before church leadership was alerted to this matter, they withdrew from our church membership, citing a different worldview. When questioned by our pastor, they wouldn't provide clarification. My question is this. Had they not left the church on their own, would this be a reason for disciplinary action? They were involved in several non-teaching ministries, but this type of advocacy would reflect poorly on the
1: church. Sure it would. It would be a terrible testimony, and especially since they are promoting it with, uh, signs. So when I was visiting my daughter and son-in-law in in Raleigh about a year ago, uh, there were signs like that all over the city of Raleigh. And, you know, they're, it's very, very sad because it's what those phrases on those signs communicate that people were putting out in their yards were, Half truths or false falsities that were totally against what the Word of God says, so um, you know probably what you're dealing with here is an unregenerate person you know for someone to be able to embrace the LGBTq lifestyle typically means they're unregenerate it means they do not have a new nature because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old things have passed away, and everything has become new, and you don't you know, embrace things that God plainly says are evil and sinful. So if they were a member of the church, then the discipline process should have been started. You go and you reprove the person in, you know, alone. So some spiritually mature person based on Galatians 6 uh, goes and confronts that person. And, hey, I see you've got this sign. Love is love. Have you thought about what the scriptures say? You know, over here it says that homosexuality is an abomination. Over here it says homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not that they can't be saved, but this is a lifestyle that denies the new birth. And then it might become, well, oh, the Bible says that. Well, I don't believe the Bible. Okay, so now, well, why don't you believe the Bible? And so we're dealing with an issue of authority or you know, and again, when when someone is born again and they hear truth, they're able to embrace it. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see, comprehend, embrace the kingdom of God, much less enter it, as he will say a few verses later. Or Paul says, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't appraise them because they're, you know, they're spiritually discerned. And so, Again, it might be an opportunity in that discipline process to lead this individual to Christ, but they are obviously someone who came into your church membership that was not regenerate. And if they didn't listen, you take two or three. If they wanted to continue in the church, which you have to protect the testimony of the church and the people in the church, because you give people like this an opportunity before you know it, they're teaching the youth that things are okay that God says are evil. And so a pastor is called to protect his sheep. Someone got mad at me because I said something about Beth Moore and Jen Hatmaker and, you know, people like that. These women are just filled with air. Jen Hatmaker, you know, who has published herself on Lifeway Books, the biggest evangelical press in the United States for, for over a decade, has now apostatized from the faith and totally embraces the LGBTQ plus lifestyle. And Beth Moore is now writing a commentary with her daughter on the book of Galatians that totally embraces this lifestyle. I'll be interested to see where she comes out. So, you know, we have to protect the testimony of the church. And so you should pray for this couple that they come to know Christ as their Savior because that's the real problem. We're out of time, but thanks for being with us today on the Bible line. I hope you will walk with Jesus Christ. Come visit us this Easter, Community Bible Church, meeting in Beaufort, Grays, South Carolina, and Graniteville. You can go to communitybiblechurch.us for times and details.